bust, boom, bust, boom. You must be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. Well, this interview is about a three-generation family business that has had to build and rebuild itself three times. SimTrack manufacture horse racing start gates and running rails, and they ship them all over the world. Even if you're not into horse racing, which I'm not, you have to listen to this episode because the lessons in here about business in general are amazing. We cover a range of topics, including the risks associated with expanding too far away from your core business, how banks can be your friend when things are going well, but not so much when you face tough times, how throwing away your existing designs to build an entirely new product can lead to greatness, and how family businesses can successfully span multiple generations. Just a quick note about the quality of the recording. There will be a few strange noises every now and then, like forklifts and machinery going off in the background. That's because we recorded this at their manufacturing facility. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Kieran, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thanks very much, mate. Pleased to be here. So we're at your uh, manufacturing facility at Mount Barker in the Adelaide Hills, which is a pretty nice part of the world to uh, to come to work yes, in today. Yes, it's, it's lovely up here in the hills. So tell us about SimTrack. Who is SimTrack? What's your elevator pitch? SimTrack is uh, is a very niche and unique business that makes uh, starting barriers for the horse uh, race courses both in Australia and pretty well anywhere in the world. Uh, we also do... The running rail, uh, which the, which guides the horses around the tracks, which includes not just the course proper, but also the inside tracks, training tracks. Uh, and we also supply to uh, a lot of the private trainers, um, uh, both here and overseas as well. So it's a... So it's, it's in a private very, training facilities. That's right. Track, like yeah. The Lindsay Parks and, uh, and the Gay Waterhouses and, and all those sort of uh, uh, people that uh, have their own private facilities. It seems like a strange place, Adelaide, to run that type of business that exports globally. But when I understand your history, it actually goes back quite a long way. This isn't this isn't a new business that started up yesterday. Uh, you've got a pretty long. Your family has a pretty long history in this type of business, doesn't yeah, it? Yes, that, that's that's correct. Actually, it was my grandfather, uh, Lindsay Sims A.M., who. Uh, Back in 1957, 58, I believe it was, he was a he was a school teacher and he was also a, a dairy farmer and was doing a lot of uh, working with steel, making up cattle yards and stuff and doing that for various people um, in the Jervois area here in South Australia. And uh, one of the local tracks, uh, Strathalbyn, sort of, uh, approached him with a photograph of uh, one of these starting barriers that the Americans were using. Uh, and pretty much the only people in the world that were using these devices. Uh, at that point, everybody was starting their races in, just with a, either a bit of a, a, a band, a rubber band, or a flag, generally. And so what was it? The rubber band was like stretched across just stretched the track, stretched and was let it? go, yes. It's, it's actually still used in a couple of very, very remote areas around the world, but uh, not too many these days. Um, so... Uh, he was given this photograph and asked, "Can you can you try and manufacture one of these things?" And and he said, "Yeah, sure." You know, he was a very positive thinker sort of fella and and very switched on. So he made uh, one barrier, I, I believe it was a fourteen stall, and the response from that was was overwhelming. Everybody sort of came up and had a look at it from down Adelaide, and and word spread very very quickly. So within a matter of years, 
everybody in Australia was talking about these this, these barriers and going this is this is the way of the future and they they make it's a game changer for for the country and and was inundated in fact to the point where my father who was at Scotch College uh, in year ten was abruptly pulled out and said no more time for this hooligan schooling stuff it's time to get uh, get your bum on the ground and, and work work for a living so well uh, not, not the scotch college is a hooligan school no no that's, this is this is true no, i think he was enjoying himself there and he was he was quite into the rowing and uh he was having a great old time but uh that dragged stopped, out that into his that stopped really fast manufacturing really fast. business and yeah. uh so we were based in that, those days we were based in murray bridge that was the first place we bought a uh, bought a factory, but yeah, within within a couple of years, there was you know uh, many dozen orders, uh, and in those days, Australia had sixteen hundred racecourses, so unlike anywhere on the planet. So per capita, right? yeah, way above anywhere else. Absolutely, nowhere else in the world, unlike Australia, we're we're quite horse mad when it comes to that. Uh, that sort of game. And what about today? Is it different today? It is. Um, a bit of a shame, but uh, basically what happens is, is corporates move in and it's all about money and finance. Uh, and even more is the occupational health and the safety sort of stuff. So the, the track that, that operated for you know, 30 or 40 years in the outback that used a wooden running rail, um, suddenly, and they only race once a year and they only have so many funds, all of a sudden the, the hierarchy says, uh, you need to upgrade, you need to replace all that rail th- with the latest and greatest, and if you can't afford it, we're going to shut you down. Cause it's, and it, so that's from a safety perspective for the horses? And the jockeys, obviously. Um, and I guess, you know, there's always the, the movement from of populations to the cities and less people and all that sort of stuff, so... Uh, it used to be the thing any old town would have a, a race course yeah. and, a, and a horse race at least once or twice a year and, and uh, it's sort of now concentrated a lot more. There's probably about 350 race courses in Australia still today, uh, but, yeah, as you can imagine, it's reduced a, a heck of a lot mm. over the years. Mm. I can imagine it's not cheap to fully kit out a, a racetrack with uh, track and... Certainly not. And, and the other thing is that these country tracks rely a fair bit on... Um, Donation of time. Um, a lot of the old cockies, if you like, that, that uh, uh, farmers and stuff will donate their time um, uh, to, to get the racetrack prepared and all that sort of stuff. And as the years go on, uh, the, the younger generation just seems to be less enthused and, and, and all sorts of stuff. So it's a bit of a, a growing trend, I think. It gets harder and harder for these small tracks to survive. Mm. So lots of big orders early on, lots of, mostly in Australia. Yes, mostly in Australia, although we were very fortunate. The timing was, was very, very lucky. In about the second or third year, um, 1961, I think it might have been, um, there was something called an, the Asian Racing Conference, which was the one conference in the world uh, where people who were racetrack managers and um, all that sort of corporate um, affiliation would, would gather together and discuss swap ideas on tracks and turf and and equipment, and um, we happened to get our very first international order was for Singapore Turf Club, and we designed the barrier specifically to to fit inside a shipping container and uh, send it over there. And within the within two weeks of having it finished, uh, this conference was on. Uh, so we had a lot of a lot of people from overseas at this Singapore Turf Club, and they sort of made a bit of a 
a showing of the starting barrier and a lot of people went, wow, look at, look at this barrier and realised that it was something that could be shipped. Uh, and that was a that was a massive coup for us. It it really sort of propelled us forward into the uh, international export. Yeah, right. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So what happened from there? So we're in the early sixties. Yep, early sixties, and it and it just pretty much grew and grew and grew from strength to strength. Um, and you know, my gra- grandfather was was very much an innovator. So there was many, many models, many, many changes, different uh, operating systems and methods to open the barriers and. And was that innovation just because he had great ideas or was there lots of feedback from you know, customers or did things change in the industry? I think a little bit of both, a little bit of both. There was, there's always feedback from customers going it would be nice, but th- then you sort of realise there's a better way to make something um, or if there's a fo- something, fo- one, one barrier has a particular issue, you go, well, let's make sure that never happens again and, and redesign that. And it just gets more and more uh, fine-tuned into being a very precise sort of piece of equipment. Um, I think one of the one of the funny things when I when I'm out and about and people ask me what I do, they say, you know, st- you make starting barriers. How can you possibly make money out of that? Surely, you know, one barrier and it's all done, and anybody can do it. But that's the thing, you know. Over the years, we've observed. Various places in Australia and even overseas that somebody says, oh, look, we'll just get the guy down the road who's an engineer and he can just copy one, you know, and so off he goes and he spends, instead of, you know, spending, say, $100,000, he, he makes one for $50,000 and they go, wow, that's fantastic, you know, what a saving. But then, of course, the thing fails on race day um, and they, they scratch their heads and then it fails again and they scratch their heads and every time the starting barrier fails which is called a false start, and and, the, and that race is lost, that adds up to much That's more than $100,000, lots of money. So they learn very quickly that it's actually a, a very precise, uh, precision piece of equipment that needs to be perfect for it to be reliable, and that's what it's all about in the game. Well, I think the other thing too with net new starters that come into an industry that don't have that history is that they may be able to copy elements, but they often don't know the why behind the design. Absolutely. Because, because that's what you've got. You know, in the last 50 years, you've got all this why behind why something's built a particular way. That's right. And so you know that you incrementally build on every element of that until you get an ex- exceptional product. That, that's right. And even today, there'll be, there might be a particular point of design and I'll, and I'll say to my father, um, gee, why don't we do it like this? And he said, no, we tried that 30 years ago. Didn't work because of this. This happened. You know, I was like, oh, okay. And so, uh, yeah, it is, it is very much a, an ongoing uh, design development sort of situation. And I think uh, probably about five years ago, six years ago, I was in Inner Mongolia putting in a starting barrier. Um, there was a Chinese gate uh, that was made that was a copy and um, having a look at it and it was it was just it was just hilarious to see um, the thin sheeted metal and and all this stuff and uh, from what I understand they used it for about a week or two and then just put it over in the corner and said it's too dangerous it's falling apart it's a disaster so a total waste of their money and uh, subsequently they came on to order from us and and that's the thing it, it, you know the Chinese are really good at uh, making things but they need to make Hundreds of thousands of things, and yeah. to get it right, uh, and, and, not that and you don't make gates. hundreds of thousands of starting gates. No, that's you, right. You know, you, you just don't. It's very and niche. And when you're saving fifty thousand dollars, when you think of the 
total cost of the horses that sit inside of that starting gate. Mm. It's a minuscule amount, That's really. Right. That's right. In fact, I remember uh, we won a very large very large contract in uh, 2009. It was the largest single order for starting gates ever, about uh, 47 starting barriers for France, which was kind of ironic because at the same time there was the GFC hitting. Mm-hmm. So while everybody else was sort of shrinking, we had to triple our, our workforce. And, uh, <laughs> That's a nice problem to have. Not, yeah, a very nice <laughs> problem to have. Um, yeah, they had they had a problem over there uh, where, where some gates were sort of uh, sticking and there was uh, just, as I said, again, one, one false start adds up to a lot of money. And they, was, they were saying, look, if the gate doesn't open perfectly, that's 800,000 800, euro per opening that it costs that club. So we ended up that night on the phone and, and the, the, the service people over there were, you know, all up through all the hour, like 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, still working on it. And uh, it was a very unusual scenario where we'd, they'd requested we use these particular vinyl covers on the front gates and it was sort of zero degrees or sub-zero temperatures and the, the sort of the frost and stuff was making these two vinyls sort of stick together and, and stopping them. But it took us, you know, many hours to work it out and, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, we got there in the end. But it, it, is, it is a very expensive game to get wrong. So, I mean, I'm looking behind you in your office and you've got this map of the world and you've got pins stuck all over the world in all sorts of countries. Uh, you mentioned Mongolia, obviously. How much of your business today comes from export as opposed to Australian customers? Australia is still our, our, our fundamental base. And again, as I explained, Australia really is horse mad with uh, currently about 350 racetracks. So we're actually just born to do this in a, in a sense. We're in the right country to, to be running this business. And, that, and that's why And there's only a few people in the world that, that do this equipment um, no more than sort of four or five that do it and and us being at the forefront is is because we make so many um, for Australia and that that really helps us produce such a fantastic product New America for example they have uh, just by comparison 100 and 118 race courses so if you look at the two countries and really to, yes 118 that's it so it really sort of makes you think how how involved we are and invested we are in horse racing. That's amazing. I mean, given that you know, a country ten times the size of Australia in terms of population. That's right. Yeah, um, it, wow, we, we really are at the, at the top of the pyramid in, in so many senses. Yeah, um, okay. we might not have the big money that uh, Royal Ascot or, or Singapore or Hong Kong have, but we are by far and wide um, the biggest horse racing country in the world um, per capita. And so, yeah, for that reason, Australia really is our base and, uh, you know, we, we do the bulk of our work here. I'd say probably 20 to 30% of our, of our uh, turnover is, is export per year, but, um, but Australia really is the fundamental foundation of, a, of the business. So that all sounds pretty interesting, pretty exciting, yeah, successful business, but the journey hasn't been a easy one for you has it and for your father no, over those years no, um, and some, no. you had some challenges. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah. Um, so going, going back in time a bit, um, when my father sort of took over from my grandfather, 
we in the early 80s it was it was sort of gangbusters for everybody the economy was booming and and uh, everybody was getting into everything everybody was very excited about the money flowing around and my my father we sort of started getting into sheds and uh, gym equipment center pivot irrigators so we had about five companies under the one roof and employing a lot of people and we had a big big nice big fat loan to the bank and so why the expansion? Why, why move well, out just of the because, starting gate? Just because we had this old factory, uh, which uh, used to be a, a transport factory storage shed, and we took it over back in the sort of 1960s, and we'd been running out of that for a long time, and we'd tacked on bits here and there, and it was a very ramshackle sort of premises, so had such a successful, you know, throughout the 70s, uh, and it looked like nothing was going to sort of stop, so my father went, right, let's... Let's set up a, a state-of-the-art sort of factory, spend the money, and uh, there's so much more potential for um, other products. So um, onwards and upwards, as an entrepreneur often does, you know, takes on wherever there could be potential uh, profits. And that was all going quite well throughout the 80s, but towards the end of the 80s, a, a recession uh, started looming, and uh, a couple of other things, we, we had a court case which... Although we won it, without getting into too much detail, we were sort of offered a very small amount for the win. Um, otherwise, it would get dragged through the court. So we, we lost a, money, a lot of money through that. Uh, and one of our main products, which was center pivot irrigators. Um, so for those that don't know, what's a center pivot? A center pivot irrigator is uh, basically like a big sprinkler. It's, it, it, uh, it irrigates huge expanses of loosen and hay and, and various things. Uh, and they you basically pocket it in the middle of a center, paddock center right. point yeah that's yeah. right a yeah. bit like a compass if you like or, yeah. or yeah. Uh, sort of thing and uh, uh, and we were making those for, for probably 15-20 years and huge sales around Australia um, with the rules but in the 80s late late 80s the Americans started importing these center pivots and uh, they were basically selling them for the same price that it cost us in, in materials. So that was about 30 to 40% of our turnover and all of a sudden overnight it was gone. So um, uh, that plus the court case plus the recession. Plus probably ridiculous interest rates at the time. Yeah, right, all sorts all of things. All of that. All of that. So uh, uh, we were, uh, uh, the bank eventually pulled the pin and. Uh, it was some pretty tough times uh, for our family, and, and we were personally guaranteed to the bank. So we lost, we lost everything. We lost cars and houses and any investments, and you know, um, pretty much reduced to zero uh, once again. So, so how did how did that feel like? How did that? What sort of well, impact was, did that have on the family? I I was about I was just I was just outside out of school, so I was late late teens. I didn't really, because I was actually went to school and I was also studying in Adelaide, I didn't see, my parents are still located in Murray Bridge, so I didn't see a lot of it, um, the stress uh, which my parents would have been going through. So uh, for better or worse, I didn't, I didn't quite see that side of it. Um, but uh, we ended up starting up with a, a, a friend of my father's for the next sort of five years. So what, restarting the business? Restarting the business and just focusing on the starting gates and the running rails. Which so back to the core that back to made the core. successful. And, and though the, 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 the important part about those products is you don't get bad debts. You don't get companies going under. You know, racetracks don't 
go under as per se you know they're sort okay. of overseen by uh, racing bodies especially yep. in australia it's a it's a very low risk from that sort of point of view unlike other products and what's the racing industry like in terms of being recession proof compared to very, others? very very recession proof you know um i think uh a lot of people, you know, when the chips are down, they might go down to the to the local pub and put on a few bets just to sort of see if they can't, you know, get a bit of luck going. And, uh, uh, and I, I think um, I've never really known a, a downturn. And there's people say it's seasonal, but it's not really. You have the spring racing carnival and all that sort of stuff, but uh, uh, it's pretty consistent. And, and we never really have noticed a dip. It's just sort of growing and growing in a sense, even though uh, there's less racetracks around. But um, yeah, so we start up again with uh, with a friend, and after five years, uh, that all went pear shaped, which I think many of the listeners might be aware. You you get a friend involved in business, and it doesn't always work out so well. So we then started again with pretty much zero in 1996. This is the third. This is our third go at it. So um, I think my father was well into his fifties at this stage. And pretty well had no house, no no sort of uh, real savings. Um, and were look, you in the business? I was the at that stage. Yes, I was. I'd started in the business in my by about the age of twenty two. Yeah. Started off, you know, sweeping the floor and doing some welding and stuff like that. And uh, I'd moved through the machine shop, fitting and turning, and um, sort of gone through a few of the trades. And I'd moved on to AutoCAD drafting at that stage. So. So come third time round, were you questioning uh, entering the business? Was, that was definitely when I felt it because I was sort of so involved in it. Um, when we walked away uh, with the zero again, it was I, I was sort of living with my parents at the time, and because we didn't have a lot of money, and uh, it was it was devastating to see uh, you know my father sort of depressed and and uh, the anxiety with my mother and sort of going what you know what are we going to do you know how, how, how can we look forward to the future when when everything's collapsed again so so why do it again why not just go that's it i'm done i'm gonna go and find something else get a job where i just work for someone why well yeah that's that's a fair point i guess that's a fair point uh, i think my father you know my father's a very intelligent man and he can turn his hand at pneumatics, electronics, pretty much anything. You know, he's very well read and, and self-taught. But he had, uh, unlike what, you know, he walked away from what was existing with uh, the friend and we knew they were really, they didn't have the history that we did. You know, all, all this information, all this history, all this knowledge that my father knew, that, well, he can't do that design because it doesn't work because we tried it 30 years ago. That was in his mind, in his head. So he really... Uh, you could could quite confidently say that my father is probably the foremost authority on starting gates in the world today. You know, nobody yeah. alive today has his experience, his design experience, his knowledge. So I guess. So while you'd lost the company to the someone company, you know who'd been sort of yeah, involved in it for a little little yeah. period of time, you were confident that you could build another company. Yeah, and, right, based and, on that. And I guess experience. more so because that that person that we walked away from had no background on it so we thought well we know we can do this you know we've done it before um it might be a bit of a long road but but you know we can compete and we can be very very competitive in this markets and we know we can so 
So we got back into it um, and we hired a little concrete shed up in Mount Barker and my father and I uh, worked out of there. He he was cutting the steel and I was welding the steel and we, we actually made chicken sheds for uh, a number of years, about three or four years, and picked up any sort of general engineering repairs we could in the in Adelaide Hills. Um, and all the while, in the background on the weekends, designing a brand new from the ground up starting barrier uh, and running rail design and working on jigs and, and all that sort of stuff and uh, after about four years because I assume it has to be a net new design right because you can't, well, absolutely. Use, you can't absolutely. use the designs you designed before because you didn't own them anymore I imagine they were in the a- other company a- absolutely yeah. absolutely my father's name was in, it might yeah. have been on the patents it's company owned so yeah. so we had to start from scratch and you know there's a lot of benefit in starting from scratch. You, you have a product that you sort of tack on bits and, and all that sort of stuff and you modify and you advance, but there's nothing better than going, you know, there's all these areas we could probably do if we just wanted to chuck it away and start from the ground up. And that was a massive benefit for us to be able to address all the little niggly things. And my father had a lot of ideas over the years, but you couldn't sort of apply it to the current product. You really had to throw it in the bin and start from scratch, which is not very economical. So when we did start up again in 96, he said, right, you know, these are the ways we should build this, we should do it that way, it should bolt together this way. and Which at the time probably seemed a difficult time, but it's actually a bit of a luxury that oh. most companies don't have that, that have been successful in the past, is when do I throw the it old successful yeah. design that's made me, you know, uh, you know, built our company into something that's great. That, that's right. That's right. How, when do and, I throw and, that and, away? And, and, and nobody and, does. I mean, you look, at, you look at something like the motor car, I mean, uh, no car manufacturer goes, we're going to chuck that, that chassis, that engine, the, the body panels, everything in the bin and start from scratch. They change the engine, they keep the chassis, they might change the chassis later, but keep the engine, they'll do bits and pieces because it's it's an expense. And that's, the, and that's the problem when you get net new competition that comes in. So whether you're in the telecommunications industry or the motor car or the racing gates, when the new competitor comes in, they don't have that legacy that they have to maintain. That's right. And so whether you're a Tesla or a exactly. new telecommunications yes. company or SimTrack, yes. right, not yes. having that yes. legacy behind you uh, allows you to do something that's right. much better yeah that that's exactly right so so we ended up with with new designs and pretty much in the year 2000 we um we launched them and uh the new the first starting barrier we we sold was to Goulburn in new south wales it was a 16 stall and i can remember the night before the truck was coming to to pick it up uh, we had one employee at that stage and uh we were working till about 11 or 12 o'clock at night to try and get it finished and get little spray cans out and, and trying trying to finish it off um, sort of crept up on us a bit so it was a it was a bit of an experience but um, that that sort of that sort of was very again very well received it, it, it performed very well it was at a great price uh, very 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 competitive and um, and racing New South Wales went wow this is this is a fantastic product and we're gonna we're gonna order some more so pretty much from 2000 the year 2000 uh, racing new south wales who, who control all the the country tracks um somewhere around 100 odd tracks uh they sort of stuck with us ever since and going wow. we can rely on these guys and they give us great service and, and a great product so uh, we've been uh, making them barriers ever since and as the years moved on um uh, and sometimes it took a little bit longer than other times because 
uh, racing associations we used to dealing with the old company. Eventually, once they saw our product and experienced our product, they went, wow, you know, this is, this is definitely uh, the way of the future and, and uh, we've gone from strength to strength. How exciting. Yeah, look, uh, it's, been a, it's been a... But what a tough journey. I, I don't know if you could call it a fairy tale story, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice roller story coasters, where... Rollercoaster is probably yes, a better word absolutely. For it. But it's, you know, today my father is, you know, he's semi-retired. You know, he's, he's got a very nice place in the country and he's got a couple of nice little cars and he's, you know, he's very comfortable. My parents are very comfortable and relaxed and, and they're enjoying this, this period of their, of their lives now, whereas... You know, it wasn't so long ago where it was just, you know, are we going to have anything to retire on? Are we going to have any savings at all? And now they're they're very, very comfortable. And uh, it's been wonderful from my point of view to see them have that uh, success and uh, and it to be a, a happy ending, I guess. So what would you do differently? You know, sitting here now and looking back over the last, I mean, you, you can't look back over the last, you know, 50 years or so or more. But is there any is there anything that you'd look back and go, you know what, if we'd only done that or if my father had only done you know, X or Y, that we would be different? Yes, it's a, it's a fair point to make. And people often come to me and say, look, there's, there's an opportunity to make this or there's an opportunity to make that and there's profit in it. And, and I understand that's the definition of an entrepreneur. They, they sort of don't hold back. They just keep pushing forward and take the high risk and uh, but I think statistically the average entrepreneur fails at least two or three times in their life you know so for what I've sort of learned from my father's experience is uh, it's okay to stick at one product and be very successful or just a few products so we also make something called uh, a steward's tower which goes around the racetracks with the stewards stand up in, or the cameras uh, will film the race from. It's quite a big piece of kit. I've, it I it is a, a big thing. I've yeah, just it, seen a couple it's, of it's them. A, it's a large, it's a very large tower, usually nine metres up in the air. and um, So we make those as well, And uh, but that's pretty much it. You know, those are the three the three products we sort of make, and, and I've no real desire to go any further than that because as soon as you take on too many products and... You expand too much, in my opinion, and you've got too many guys going on. It, it can get out of control, and you know if something should happen to the industry, uh, you find it very difficult to shrink back down. So that's when you get yourself into trouble. And as we've seen recently in the news, you know it's an ongoing thing where successful, long-term, uh, big companies all of a sudden, you know, the announcements made that they're they're packing up and they're folding. So. I think uh, it's a wise, very wise thing. Well, I to... think the other part too, you're selling new products into an existing industry where you've already got relationships, you've yes. already got credibility, Absolutely. you've already got history, got goodwill, yeah. and so and you, and you've got the goodwill. Whereas when you're selling gym equipment and irrigation systems, you're yes. selling to a whole bunch of new yeah. net new people. So not only are you creating and selling new products, but you're actually creating and selling new into That's new right. relationships. That's that right. I think you just, so it makes it much harder. You can just spread yourself a bit thin, in my opinion. So, uh, um, and probably the only other thing I would have to say is this is politically correct or whatever, but the banks. Um, you know, my father got very deep in with the banks. It was personally guaranteed in the in the eighties and. You know, when they decided it was time to pull the pin, um, you know, to lose everything is is devastating. So when we, after our second fall, um, we said to ourselves, there'll be no banks, there'll be no loans to the banks. So this is, it's obviously a much slower and harder road to take. 
But the benefit is today we own the premises, we own the factory, we own every piece of equipment here. We don't have one cent, no overdraft at all. So if there's you know tough times, we have to shrink back down. We can we can quite easily do that, and we don't have any overheads. We can cut them right back, and that's that's a that's a pretty big security to have. And the only people you have to answer to is yourself exactly. and your employees. Exactly. That's it, really. That, that, that's mm. right. So um, it's uh, it's a fantastic way, and a very we're very fortunate, you know, to, to be in this position. But um, I uh, I'm very pleased that that's the way we've sort of formed this new company, and it makes me sleep very well at night. It's a great story. Uh, I, I'm not you know I'm not into the racing industry. It's not it's not my gig, but it's a great story of. Not only entrepreneurship over such a long period of time, but you know the, the rise from the ashes multiple times, the tenacity, uh, and the great success. Great product, great success, both here and overseas. So you should be very proud of uh, what you and your father and your grandfather before him built. So yeah, well done. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cheers. Jeepers. There are few business owners that have the tenacity and determination like the Sims family. If there was ever a lesson in how to drive your business through tough times, I reckon it's theirs. Head over to my website, www.theselfmadetheory.com, and I'll have details in there about where you can find SimTrack. Plus, I've got some great photos on there as well. If you're enjoying our stories and interviews, then drop us a line or let us know via social media. Hey, we would love it if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering.